Hey everybody, welcome to season two of the Mixmasters podcast. I'm your host, Steve Litcher, and for those not familiar, I'm the touring front of house engineer for Stitched Up Heart. Working with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet an incredible number of really talented people, and I wanted to introduce you to them. I wanted to let you hear their stories and learn from their experiences. This is really your chance to listen in on behind the scenes talk and to learn from some of the best in the business. I have to give a huge shout out to my pal, Merritt Goodwin, for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's also an extremely talented composer. Give him a follow on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin or on Instagram at Merritt Goodwin Official. Now let's bring up the faders and jump into this episode of Mixmasters Podcast. On this episode of Mixmasters, I talk with Bruce Ryder. Bruce is the front of house engineer for Five Finger Death Punch, and if you've ever been to one of their shows, you know just how incredible Bruce's mixes are. Bruce is a self-taught engineer with more than 20 years of experience in the live sound industry. He's toured with bands that include Rancid, Stabbing Westward, Power Man 5000, Limp Biscuit, Static X, and Five Finger Death Punch. He's mixed Five Finger for the better part of 10 years now, so you know he's doing everything right. Bruce's story is extremely fascinating, as are his approaches to mixing shows, tuning PA systems, configuring consoles, and so on. Please enjoy this episode, and as soon as we're able to get back to normal, go see Bruce mix a show. Hey everybody, welcome back to Mixmasters Podcast. I am joined today by Bruce Ryder, and Bruce is a legend in the live sound production industry. If you've been listening to any of the past episodes, you'll know that several of the guests have referred to Bruce, and all of them have said, you have to get Bruce on the podcast because he's amazing. And I did it. Somehow I tricked Bruce into joining me. <laughs> so Bruce, it's great to have you on the show. That's quite flattering, and uh, good evening, good to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, so, Bruce, I believe you're based in the Atlanta area. I live in the old fourth ward of Atlanta, right in the smack dab in the middle. Oh, it's gorgeous. I have a friend who lives in Lawrenceville, uh, just outside of Atlanta, and we've visited there when we weren't in a pandemic, and it was absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. So that's cool. Yeah, I love it. Uh, what are you doing to stay busy right now? Anything uh playing guitar a lot and um i've been mixing a couple of studio projects which has been a fun creative outlet you know keeps the chops active yeah definitely i uh did a song for a band called the jaybirds recently which turned out pretty fun that's awesome are you doing yeah. Uh, not to jump into like the technical stuff, but I'm I'm curious: Are you doing that in the box, or are you doing that on a console, or how are, how are you mixing that stuff? All in the box. Uh, my all my consoles and everything, all my toys are in Las Vegas with you know the Five Finger Death Punches storage in with their gear, you know, because we were prepped to do a tour in April that got you know kaput due to the pandemic. So, uh, yeah, so I just have, you know, a little setup with a couple of, you know, a couple of monitors and, and logic and waves plugins. Yeah, that's cool. It's great that you can, you know, keep mixing and you don't need all of the hardware. That is, I guess, one of the advantages to today's technology. And you and I were talking a little bit about technology before we started and the love hate relationship with, uh, yep. OSs and whatnot, but we'll, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Right on. Uh, so can we start off, um, in my typical fashion, I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. 
How did you get interested in music? How old were you when you got into music? You mentioned you played guitar. Was that where you started off or just take us back a couple of years? I mean, the, the first time I recall touching a guitar, I was probably three or three-ish years old. And, and I was just fascinated with the vibrations. Yeah, I used to sit on my lap and just pluck the strings and listen to them vibrate and it's like, wow. And, you know, and um, when I was probably six, my mom got me a transistor radio. And when I was seven, she got me a record player. And I started, you know, just buying records and, and listening to them. I was fascinated. Queen, Queen was one of the records that really got me interested in how audio works because I, I would hear Freddie Mercury's voice and, and I, in my seven-year-old mind or eight-year-old mind, I couldn't fathom how it sounded like that. I didn't understand that he had a multi-track tape recorder and, you know, they layered all this stuff and engineered it. I thought that actually came out of his voice. And I tried to figure out how he was singing like that. You know, I noticed if I sing in the bathroom, it sounds pretty cool. Or if I sang in the hallway, it sounds pretty cool. And if I sang in the living room, it didn't sound cool. You know, you know? so I just got interested in music. And whenever, but, you know, my, my mom a lot of times lived on college campuses, you know, like, and there's always concerts of some sorts, local bands playing. So I'd hear a band, you know, practicing in a house or playing a, you know, in a park or some event, and I would follow wherever the live music was and just hang out and watch, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that's, that's how I became interested in music. You know, and, yeah. was, was anybody in your family uh, musical as well, or do you just no. sort of gravitated <laughs> towards it? Yeah, n n not at all. Um, I mean, I don't think anyone in my family plays any instruments or anything. You know, my sister might play piano, I think, but, uh, yeah. If she's anything like I was, she was probably coerced into it by your mom. My mom insisted that I played <laughs> piano. I hated every second of it, but I'm grateful she made me do it because it gave me an understanding of like tempos and reading music and whatnot. But yeah, it's great education. Yeah. So how did you make the jump then from, you know, listening to Freddie Mercury and, you know, starting to put these things together? Where would you say you actually started working with live music? So I lived in a small town called Ivesdale, Illinois for my middle teen years. You know, so when I was, when I was 15, I met this uh, musician called Roy Radmaker, and he played in a country band called Roy Radmaker and his country all-stars. And uh, this guy would let me hang out in his garage with him and, you know, play with his sound equipment. You know, he had a PVPA system and, and I, I remember this Korg rack mount delay unit and, you know, and just amazing guitar setup. And, and he would just let me fiddle around and, and, uh, you know, he, he would take me out with him when he, you know, his band played like VFW halls and stuff like that, you know, so he'd take me out and let me carry his equipment for him. And, you know, operating the sound was nothing. I mean, I, it's not like I was mixing per se. I didn't know what I was doing, but I, you know, I would help him mix the sound, you know, and, um, you know, that, that got me really interested in, you know, being a sound engineer. So I was like, this is what I got to do, you know? And, and, uh, you know, there, we lived in a town, you know, like I said, Ives, Illinois, it's maybe 30 miles out in the country from Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, which is a big college town with one of the most incredible music scenes you could imagine. 
you know, they had such a diverse set of bands and, and so many places for musicians to play live music, you know, and, uh, I was, I was grounded one, you know, but my mom let me, she was like, okay, you got one hour to go to spaceport, which is the arcade that was underneath a club called Mabel's. And as I pulled up or as I, as I walked up to the door, this van pulled up and started unloading gear. And it happened to be a band called Husker Du, who had, I had just seen on MTV's basement tapes, you know, it was probably 1987, I guess. And, uh, and they, uh, I was like, Hey, can I help? And they're like, hell yeah. And I was a big, strong kid, you know? So I, grabbed two Marshall cabinets by their handles and carried two Marshall cabinets up the stairs by myself. And they're like, yeah, this kid is doing all the work for us. You know? and so I, I ended up doing merchandise that night. And uh, it was sort of funny because my, my mom came looking for me and I, uh, I, I ducked behind the merch table and hid. I could see her legs and hear her, you know, saying, uh, you know, have you seen my son? And, and the doorman was looking at me and looking at my mom I was like, please don't. Yeah. And uh, he he remained silent and didn't rat me out to my mom. So I stayed there and, and did the show. And then it gets to be one o'clock at night and I'm stuck 30 miles away from home with no car, no driver's license. And this um, the guy who I helped load the gear drove me home. And he happened to work for a band called The Last Gentleman, who were a very popular local pop band. And uh he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm leaving this job because I'm moving away. Why don't you come and, and be there? You know, he called it stage manager, but basically all around roadie, you know, set up their gear and load a man out. And, you know, so I started doing that and I eventually became their sound engineer and, and uh, started working at a local club called Mabel's, you know, that I met the Husker Du thing at and was their house sound engineer for a while. And through that, I met all the local bands and just went on tour with, um, I think the, I can't recall if the first one was poster children or if it was Titanic love affair, but whichever one I went on tour with them and, um, and then just kept on meeting artists and, and I got lucky and, and, uh, met this manager that managed, he, he managed these English bands and, he hired me to go on tour with bands like Slow Dive and and um, Pale Saints and Darling Buds. You know, there were all these shoegazer bands that were on a record label called 4AD. And, you know, just from there, I just kept on meeting people and trying to build contacts, you know. And I would, like, you know, go through my record collection and you could see, like, addresses for managers or booking agents or whatever. So I'd write them all letters and uh this this one day i got a letter from a manager um called larry toll he worked for ren management and he asked me if i wanted to work for this band called drama rama you know so i it didn't work out i never got the gig but he gave me this other gig with a band called stabbing westward as a guitar tech and uh he's you know he's like we don't have any jobs for sound engineers available right now but hey you can go on tour and be a guitar tech so I said, yes. And I immediately saw that their sound engineer was not, um, I mean, it's not that he was a bad sound engineer, but I thought I could do better. Like most sound engineers think, you know, so I figured out how to steal his job and I stole his job. And a couple of weeks later I was the front of house guy. And then next thing you know, we're opening up for Depeche Mode doing, you know, massive, uh, 
tours, you know, and, and, uh, I learned a lot from, from those experiences. And, you know, and, and that, that I think started the, the sort of major touring time or, or, you know, experience on big PAs and in front of large audience stuff, you know, that I did my first European festivals with them, you know, and, and like, you know, all the Reading festivals and Pukul Pop and all that, you know, and it was exciting. Wow. That's, that's really incredible. Um, what amount of time transpired between you working with the the local club Mabel's to when you were working with like Stabbing Westward, for example, was that? Um, 94 is when I started with Stabbing Westward. So uh, I think 92 is when I started touring with, um, well, where I had no other jobs other than touring. And uh, yeah, so it was a transition like the, like 90 and 91. I did little tours here and there. Like we'd go play like Chicago, Minneapolis, Des Moines, and then go back to Champaign, you know? And, you know, it's like mini van tours, you know, playing cafes and small clubs and parties and, you know, sleeping on floors. Like that, that is something that I really am glad that I got to experience actually sleeping on floors on tour you know, the, we, we would, at the end of a, a poster children's show, for example, the bass player Rose would ask, you know, through the microphone, you know, say, hey, does anybody got a place we can crash? And we'd get all these choices, you know, uh, like there, maybe there was some kid that lived with his parents in a big fancy house and we could do laundry. Or maybe there was this other kid that had, you know, a party and a keg or something, you know, and, and we could go there and, and party and have fun all night or whatever. But we would we got to meet all these really interesting people and, you know, go through their record collections and just sit and talk with people all over the country, you know, that, that were, had mutual interest in music and art and stuff. And, you know, they take us to the local guitar shop, you know, and the local cafe to get the best breakfast or whatever, you know, and it was just a great experience that you, I don't have now on the road, like it's a different kind of great now, you know, it's a lot of hotels and airports and, buses and parking lots nowadays you know walmarts a lot of walmart parking lots (laughs) yep fortunately we don't have to do the walmart parking lot with with the current situation but you know because we but you know the parking lots of venues wherever you got all the buses lined up out in the parking lot you wake up in the morning okay there's another parking lot and there's the arena and you know you walk in and you're inside all day long and you know you get on the bus at 2 a.m or 3 a.m and drive to the next city you know rinse lather repeat yep yeah it's a beautiful thing i miss it <laughs> i i miss it tremendously as well i uh speaking of stabbing westward i remember seeing them in madison which is where i live madison wisconsin uh at the orpheum theater rob i'm not the orpheum the barrymore theater uh which is probably like a 1300 cap room um mm-hmm. probably around 95 do you think you might have been on that tour no that was after after me um gosh who did i work with after that well yeah let's talk a little bit about your resume so stabbing westward you mentioned then there are groups like rancid uh power man 5000 limp biscuit static x and then of course five finger death punch and i think you've been with five finger for a number of years yeah i've been with five finger death punch since 2010 and uh it's they're wonderful band to work with you know some of the hardest working most creative people i've 
encountered in this business. Yeah. How did you, uh, how did you get into that role then? How did you get hooked up with those guys? I was on tour with a band called Dragon Force and, um, yeah, I, I practice martial arts also. Yeah, that's one of my hobbies or whatever. And uh, me and Herman, the guitar player, we had uh, a place. We went to the Jägermeister tent. It was a summer tour, mayhem tour, you know, so you can imagine it's steaming hot outdoors, you know. And and uh, so we, the Jägermeister tent was air conditioned and they didn't open up until like noon or something to the public. So from like nine to noon, we could have the tent and we'd set up our mats in there. And, and, uh, there was this guy called Zoltan that was on the tour. He, you know, he's the guitar player and leader of five finger death punch. And he, uh, also practiced martial arts and, and had some mats. So we doubled our mat space and had a new practice friend. And, you know, we, we got to, you know, be friends, you know, and just from doing martial arts and, you know, he decided that he wanted me to mix his band and, at the time, his band was on the second stage and didn't have a budget or anything. So it's like, well, let's keep talking or whatever. And, you know, we kept in touch and, you know, we reconnected at the, what is it, probably the Download Festival, maybe a couple of years later. I think it was, what, 2007 or so, and, uh, or 2008. I'm not sure what years before I worked with them, but uh, I was, you know, on tour with another band, like I said, and, and they, uh, you know, Zoltan and I got to talking again and he's like, you know, someday, someday you'll work for us, you know, and it's like, well, I, I hope to, you know, that'd be, that'd be cool, you know, and, and uh, then eventually it just, it worked out in 2010 that I started mixing sound for them and they have progressively gotten more and more popular and sell more and more tickets and more and more records and, you know, just and continue to write great records. I've heard on some other um, uh, podcasts and, and interviews that you've done that you worked with like Dave Natal and, and Big Mick from Metallica. Can you sort of explain oh, how yeah. you got hooked up with those guys and sort of what you took away from your experiences with them? Another experience I had early on, you know, from meeting that guy that uh, hooked me up with the, you know, had me carry his gear for Husker Du was uh, he knew a guy that worked at the assembly hall which was the local arena and he figured out how to introduce me and I got a gig as a stagehand there. And through that, I would always gravitate to like, somehow I just convinced Bob Diener, who was the stage manager of the assembly hall or the crew chief, whatever you call him. Yeah. And he, he would, you know, put me on the sound crew, you know, cause I would be like begging him, please, please put me on the sound crew, you know? And, and uh, through that, I got to, you know, associate in some limited way with all these great engineers. And Dave Natal was one of them. He mixed Richard Marks and Yes were two of the really notable ones that he came through on. And on the on the Yes tour, it was the Un Yes Union tour. And I, I just recall watching him mix and listening to how just how he did things and he kept it so simple and and pure. You know, and and one of the biggest things I learned from him was to do what the artist says immediately, you know, because the, the singer happened to stop the show and said, engineer, turn the bass down. And I saw him reach so fast and turn the bass down. He didn't get butthurt about it. His ego wasn't, you know, like, Oh, the bass is where I, you know, he did what the artist wanted and it just sounded incredible. And just watching how he tuned the PA how he walked the room and made personally sure that 
everything sounded good and was, you know, the PA was deployed to the best it could be, you know, it was, it was great. And with big Mick, uh, I I was touring with this punk band called Rancid and we did the Lollapalooza festival in 1996. That was uh, when Metallica cut their hair, (laughs) but they, uh, they headlined the, um, the festival, the tour. And, um, you know, every day I would spend all day following Mick around, you know, just watching everything he did and listening to how incredible it sounded. And, you know, I, I would ask him, like, how do you do that? Like, how are your guitars so awesome? You know, he's like, just turn it up, mate. Yeah. And it, I mean, he didn't offer any specific advice. Just don't be afraid to turn it up. You know? And, you know, so I was like, oh, let me try that. Just turn it up, but keep it comfortable. You know? And uh, just, I don't know, he, listening, listening to the way he approached things and the way he experimented until he found the best sound that he could get at that time, you know, was, was, you know, inspiring. Back then they, you know, they, I'm sure that in that time period, they weren't using, you know, real time analysis, like smart tools or anything like that. And they, yeah, we, it was a, it was D DB sound did the tour and it was a massive MT4 rig. And, you know, the, the time alignment and things of that nature came, I mean, mostly by ear and doing math on paper, you know. And you know, I, I had nothing to do with that, obviously, because I was support band's engineer. I came and did, you know, got what they gave me, basically. But, you know, the, you know it, it was pretty cool. That was actually the first digital console, that, well, at least digitally controlled analog console, I should say, an Amec recall, you know, and, but it was really cool because all the gates and compressors and things like that were on a computer screen and, and the, uh, you know, the, like to recall the console, you know, you'd hear Rupert Neve's voice, you know, telling you, you know, more, more, more or whatever until you, you know, had each knob to the, you know, recalled spot or, or to the spot you wanted to recall it to. But, uh, so that, that was that was really exciting, you know, because we, you know, we had free reign of the PA with the exception of probably, you know, Mick might have turned off a few subs on us or whatever, but that didn't matter to a punk band compared to Metallica, you know, and uh, it was it was awesome, you know, and and there were other bands like uh, Soundgarden on that tour who were quite inspiring too. Their their sound engineer at the time, Mark Nafisi, he had this instruction from the band that he was not allowed to use equalization on the console right he was only allowed to use compression so he had a couple of i want to say they were la two ways but i don't recall what they were you know nice nice compressors you know and um and he used high pass filters and a graphic eq on the master bus and that was it and it was the most natural beautiful sounding mix i had heard I couldn't fathom how he got things to sound good, you know, without EQing, you know, and that probably made me think about how important it is to use EQ as a tool to, for a specific function, not to just make arbitrary, Oh, it's the kick drum. I have to make it clicky or whatever. You know, it's, it's to specifically enhance 
something like a reverb or something and just arbitrarily add it. You do it to enhance something to serve the song, you know? So, um, so he, he got me thinking about just why you apply equalization to any channel and, and what pros and cons there are to it, you know? And, and I went you know, through a phase for a while, like a, a band that I mixed called static X. Uh, I went through a phase where we, you know, didn't, we got all of the tones by choosing the right microphone and, and, and getting it in the right spot and changing the sound of the amp or the sound of the drum until it sounded badass instead of me trying to tweak it until it sounded, you know, a certain way. And, you know, that, that approach doesn't work for every artist, you know, for five finger death punch, I have to EQ the shit out of things to get it, to have the sonic, you know, feel that, that I think is good anyways, you know, but, but I'm still mindful about not overdoing anything and, and every now and then just listening to it raw with no processing just to see what it actually is and if I'm improving it or making it worse, you know. I wanted to ask a, a follow-up question to that. So it's impressive that their instruments are tuned such that you don't have to really do any type of major equalization with band like, you know, um, Static X or with like uh, in the in the Soundgarden. Soundgarden uh, example, but mm-hmm. um, how do you think, or how did you make room for everything in the mix? Because I think guys like Pooch and you know other engineers always claim that you can't have you know the same thing occupying the same frequency range without muddying it up. So was it really just all specific tunings, or how did it with balance? Like say the guitars, for example, you know. I, I was probably an annoying sound engineer that made the guitar techs really move mic- microphones around a lot, you know, but we would find the right spot on the speaker, you know, and, and with the bass guitar, I'm not really a fan of, of DIs. I'm, I'm more of a fan of putting a mic on the bass cabinet and um, which of course with five finger death punch, that doesn't work. So for the past 10 years, that's blown out the window because there's so much, stage volume with that band that it just it would bleed through you know but at any rate the that's that's a way i've done it in the past though is you know if if the low mids on the bass are cluttering up and getting in the way of the guitar i'll put the mic closer to the center of the speaker or vice versa you know and just find where they sit best you know and and high pass filters and if back then if you were lucky enough to be on midas console low pass filters were really beneficial to shaping the sound also you know i mean high, high pass filter is probably one of the most important tools you know with getting a good mix i think yeah i've heard that so many times and i've discovered that i've i've run sound since 1988 which is hard mm-hmm. to believe when i say that out loud <laughs> but uh i didn't really appreciate high pass and low passing until i started getting into larger rooms and working with really big pas because the the natural thought I think for people that don't work on large PAs is, Oh, you know, the bigger the room, the bigger the PA, the easier it is because you have less stage volume to fight. Uh, but then you quickly realize that things can get out of control before you know it. So filtering is definitely your friend and being uh, respectful of the EQ, which I think you pointed out really clearly that plays a big role as well. Yeah. I mean, it, it should, it should enhance, the sound not detract from it, you know, and, and if you over, and, and, you know, I'm guilty like of 
over-EQing on the master bus every now and then when I tune the PA, you know, I'll just EQ the shit out of it, chasing some problem and and go, man, I wish I hadn't done that, ruined that show. You know, <laughs> you know but, but, you know, it's, I try to be conservative with that, you know, even though every now and then I get carried away, you know. I've been there. (laughs) Nothing is more humbling than when you spend, you know, 10 minutes on a multi-track applying all this magic to it. And you're like, oh, it sounds perfect. And then just for, you know, for the sake of it, let me bypass all those settings. And it actually sounds better. And you're just like, (laughs) oh, I dug myself into a hole and didn't even realize it. Yeah, you know, I like I, I'm lucky that I I mix the same band for long periods of time. You know, normally like uh, I mixed Static X for ten years. You know, and I've been with Five Finger Death Punch for over ten years now. So you get into groove, and it's easy to let it get stagnant if you you know just keep on with the same mix on the same file. You know, so I, I do like to delete my mix periodically, and sometimes I choose to do that you know, at the most inopportune moments, like I might choose to start from complete scratch after I did a sound check and shows in four hours, you know, but it's every time I've done that, the pressure that I feel makes me make good decisions, I think, you know. so You're far braver than I am. <laughs> I, I would maybe do it in between tours, but before a show, that's... Uh... Well, if you remember before the digital days, I mean, you basically did, especially if you're on a club tour or something or not, not having the same PA every day, you did that every day anyways. Yeah. That's a good point. I remember back in the analog days when I first started, I was on, I ironically or coincidentally mixed on a PV powered, you know, 16 channel board. Mm -hmm. I remember zeroing everything on it after every single show. And then, you know, starting fresh the next day and now that seems crazy to me, but it probably was actually a smart thing to do in in hindsight. Yeah, you know, and it's like I I keep I, I revert back to a lot of the same you know techniques or settings or whatever, even when I zero it out. But sometimes I'm like, ah, why was I doing that? And I get rid of an idea or you know, or like, why didn't I think of this before? You know? Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about some of the consoles you you've worked with and work with, you know, currently? So you made mention of the Midas uh, earlier mm-hmm. and then ha- how long were you on Midas consoles and especially with like five finger death punch 2010. So that would have been pre like the M32 X32. Everything would have been pretty analog. What was, what was your transition? So when I first started with Midas or with uh, five finger death punch, I spec avid consoles. Yeah. So the like 2010 to 12, that was probably all profiles or venue D shows, you know, maybe a, yeah, that was probably that exclusively, you know? And then um, I saw this advertisement for a Midas Pro 2C, like just a brochure, you know, it was actually a physical, it was mailed to me, you know, like a proper brochure. I was looking at it and I was like, man, that is so cool, you know? And uh, I went to the NAM show in 2012, I suppose. It could have been 11, I think it's 2012. And uh, walked up to the Midas, you know, booth and and walked up to Pro 2C. I was like, you know, these angels are singing, trumpets are blowing, and it's awesome. And I pushed this button, and it went <laughs> and made this horrible, distorted sound, and every meter went into red. And I was like, oh my god, what happened? So I pushed the button again, 
And it did it again. And I was like, what the hell? You know, so I called the Midas guy over there. It's like, hey, is it supposed to do that? And he's like, it's not doing that. It's like, watch. You know, and did it again. And, and you know, I found there were some glitches with with the console, with the, you know, software programming. But I still thought it was an amazing tool. So I, I bought one. And, um, and I used it up until a couple, well, last year, I, I changed to uh, uh, Waves LV1. And, um, you know, but the, the Midas Pro 2C, I think, is a perfect mixing console. It's, it's just, it sounds great. You know, the, a lot of people hate the patching method in it. To me, it's like standing behind a mixing console and, got the back of the rack there and the back of the console there. You just patch to and from, you know, maybe the, the matrix grid style thing, you know, that Avid and a lot of other consoles that might be easier, I suppose. But you know, that, that didn't bother me about it. You know? And, and, uh, but yeah, so I, I got a little bored though. And, and I ran out of facilities on the console because the band kept adding, you know, the, the drummer's drum kit kept growing, you know, and, and I was like, well, let me, you know, because I, I normally, you know, just have one signal for each guitar player. But in this case, one of the guitar players made a left, right, center rig. So I had to have three channels for him now. And then if I have three channels for him, I've got to have something stereo for the other guy to, you know, make it balance out or whatever. So now I have, you know, all these extra channels and you know, and I wanted a couple more groups. So I was like, well, let me try this waves thing. I've been following that since it, you know, started, uh, you know, since started seeing, you know, stories online about it or whatever. And, and, um, yeah, I, again, went to the NAM show and, uh, sat in this room and played with it. I was like, this is awesome. You know? So I bought one and, and just sort of built what I think thought was the perfect rig or whatever. And, and, you know, used it, for several tours and it's been great yeah on the last run i had a technical difficulty with it you know and and uh so during the tour it it um i think we were playing festival hall in frankfurt you know sold out show you know thousands and thousands of people and you know the show's rocking it's going perfect and all of a sudden i hear you know it's like what's that it was such a fast little thing that was like I was like, it could be a channel in, input channel, or it could be anything, you know. But you know, and then I noticed, you know, it, it happened again. You know, and then the second song, it happened like three times. Fourth song, it happened like five times. You know, and after the show, I called up Claire and said, "Hey, can you guys get me a console at the next show, like tomorrow morning? Can you get me one overnight?" And Claire can do anything, you know. So they did, and I was like, uh, you know, so I, I mixed the last. I think five or six shows on a, on an avid console. And, and that got me thinking, man, I really missed faders, you know, like I love everything about the LV one, but I missed faders, you know, it's just the way I grab it with like a vocal fader. I, I grab on the outside. So I, you know, sort of move it up and down almost syllable by syllable for, for some songs anyway, it's not for every single part, but you know, it, there's a lot of movement in it and, doing that on the screen wasn't quite as comfortable, even though I adapted to it a bit, but, you know, so, so I, I think this next tour cycle, you know, whenever it happens, I'll either, you know, get the new controller 
you know, and, and try out the new fader system for the waves thing, or I'll use a S6L, you know, which is an amazing mixing console also. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask if you had a chance to play around at all with the new physical surface that they have for the LV one. I saw Pooch got one uh, maybe a week or so ago and it, it's really intriguing. Waves does some really cool stuff, but yeah, something scary about hearing those, those glitches and at least it didn't drop audio, but man, that's... Well, it, it dropped audio for just a millisecond. Like it went and, and it's like just a millisecond though. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like having said that though, I've had avid consoles. I don't know how many times, you know, the TDM link cables come loose and you lose audio and it makes all kinds of horrible glitches or the Ram comes loose, you know, and you have to unscrew a hundred screws that have the finest, longest threads possible, you know, to, to get to it. And my big hands won't fit in, in there, you know, so it's, you know, I've had problems. I've had show stopping problems with other brands of consoles. You know, the, uh, we had a artist called in flames as our, uh, co-headlining band on a Europe tour Thomas Kubik, who's a fantastic engineer, he was using an S6L, you know, and, and he had several problems with it, you know, like one, one of the shows, he, he just needed to record like one song for the artist or something like that. So you know, he recorded it and when he was done, he shut the computer and the console turns off, well, turns off audio, you know, and, and you know, we're in front of 10,000 people or whatever. And you know, me and him were looking at each other, systems techs, like, ah, what is going on, you know? And then, you know, so all consoles have some problems, except for a Yamaha PM4000, which I never had a single failure on. Yeah. That's probably the console I mixed the most number of shows on is a PM4000. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a legendary console. And I'll tell a quick little story here. I usually hate talking on the podcast, especially with people of your caliber. <laughs> But I had the opportunity to mix a show for Stitched Up Heart, the band that I work with. They were mm-hmm. they were wanting to record something for streaming purposes in July. So I drove out to Los Angeles, brought my DLive system. We were on this huge uh, horse rescue facility, uh, racing horses, go there to retire. And Mixie, the lead singer, volunteers there. And she arranged you know, to, to do this streaming event from their facility. Monster Energy provided a stage, all this stuff. It was all, it was great, great, great. Mm-hmm. Power was a little dodgy uh, at this horse ranch, as you can imagine, and we did not have a large PA. But I ran an extension cord, you know, to front of house for the console, and three times during the show, somebody would bump that extension cord, and it would drop power to the console. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, yep. there was no audience there, and you know, it just drove me absolutely batty. But you know, everything. The, thankfully, the mix rack was up on stage, and it would continue to pass audio, but not having control of anything for about 15 seconds was absolutely nerve wracking. So yeah, I can't imagine 10,000 people looking at you, you know, when, or looking at, um, uh, the other engineer when the, when the computer shut down and what that had to be like. I have a, a funny story about, a uh, it's not really a failure because the console did exactly what it was meant to do. Uh, with my Midas Pro 2C, I was mixing Five Finger Death Punch at the Garden State Arts Center, which is probably called something else now because they keep changing the names of venues, but that's what it was always called, so that's what I will continue to call that venue in New Jersey. And uh, <clears throat> it's an amphitheater, you know, there might have been maybe 20,000 people there, you know, 
and you know the show was going great sounding great the band was just performing awesome you know and and the crowd was going nuts just pumping their fists and screaming and and you know it's like oh that's awesome and then all of a sudden the i hear just like this digital chirping pink noise type of you know and it's just steady and i'm like what is that and me and uh milk was the systems tech from rat and and he we're like whoa and so we we mute the drive because all the meters on the console are still looking normal so i'm like it's not even the console it's something else what is it you know and and we're all just going can't figure out what is causing it and fortunately the band just kept on playing yeah but i have new jersey people saying you know hey so man what the fuck is wrong with you you know and and just brutalizing me and i'm just like i don't know what to do and the people on stage like the systems techs and audio techs on stage monitor guy everything they're like everything looks good up here uh and i was like digital chirping you know it's got to be sample rate what is the sample? and i was like ah oh, the stage rack and i ran up to the stage like as fast as i could through the audience and i went up to the stage rack and i had noticed that it was moved and apparently a drunk guest of someone in the band was leaning on it and leaned into the button where you switch from 48 96k to 48k right which is a you have to hold that button in you can't just like press it in it you know you have to hold it in for that to activate and that's what it was so I, I ran up there pushed that button and ran back to front of house unmuted everything's perfect again my heart was racing my nerves were shot my hands were shaking it was <laughs> horrible so I, I took this piece of plastic and put it over those like glued it over the because i'm never going to change i have no need to change the sample right the system operates at 98 or 96k you know so i just made it so those buttons are inoperable you can't get to them so nobody could ever do that to me again you know and uh but yeah that, that was nerve-wracking <laughs> That's not the New Jersey I know. I mean, I can't fathom that they were giving you a hard time. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, so can we, we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the, uh, the technical side of things. I'm curious about what your relationship is like with your system engineer. Are you always working with the same system engineer tour to tour? Does it change? Uh, can you uh, talk it, about it that? It changes a bit during, due to circumstance. I switch sound companies every couple of tours, you know, like, so from that i'll i'll get different engineer you know different systems engineers but the systems engineer is one of the he's one of the mvps you know like a, he's a, or she is essential for me to do my job you know like they and and it's it's almost like having a mastering engineer with you in a way to to tell you hey hey is that as loud as you normally have it or is that louder than you normally or what you know just to your high end's a little weird today or or whatever you know so it, it, i i love having a good systems tech that's not shy about saying their opinion you know and and that knows more about smart and deploying the system than i do you know but, um, so yeah I, I i am very picky about having a good systems tech i'm not 
it doesn't necessarily have to be the same one every time though. When you're getting ready to go out on a tour, for example, um, like say your last tour, what is your role in specking out the the hangs and the PA and are you working in conjunction primarily with the band, a musical director, the production yeah, company? Well, I, I choose every everything about the PA system. You know, Five Finger Death Punch gives me 100% freedom of how to present their audio. You know, they 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 trust what I'm doing, you know, and you know, so yeah, they um so I'll, I'll spec how many boxes I think I need and I'll ask the sound company and the systems tech's opinion on how many boxes they think I need and then we'll consult the budget and that'll really define how many boxes I get, you know? And, um, you know, so, I mean, in in general, you know, it depends on the PA, but, you know, we'll typically have, you know, 12 or 14 boxes deep on the main hang and, you know, 12 or 14 boxes on the side, you know, similar on the side hang, you know, and, and, um, <clears throat> one thing that was really cool on these last couple of tours, I've been using the Claire cohesion speaker system and, uh, start off. I, I spec 12 of the cohesion subs for the total. Right. And I was like, that is crushing. Turn those down. You know? And then I, I got down to using two of them and then I was like, you know, just mute those. And and I use no subs for most of that tour. Every every couple of days, you know, I'd switch and I'd have the subs on, you know, the two on the floor, but they would just be barely on just to fill in a little bottom end in the middle, you know. And the the amount of clarity and and I hate to say cohesion because it's called the cohesion PA, but the amount of clarity and cohesion that I got in the mix was incredible, you know, when I got rid of the subs. And, you know, and I still got just incredible physical impact and, and feel out of the PA, but there was no bottom end just floating around the room, getting in the way of the music, you know? And, and one thing that I've always hated is like, you, you know, you say you're on stage left or stage right and you're within like maybe 10 feet of the barricade. Traditionally, you're in front of this big pile of subwoofers, you know? So a solution was you put a front fill you know, a high pack or whatever on the subs, but you're still being pummeled with bass, you know, and in getting rid of the subs, just it made it so it was even everywhere in the room and the the impact was the same everywhere in the room. And the, the less sources you have of sound, the better you, off you are too. The, the more sources you have sound in the room, the more phase and time problems you're going to have, you know, is, you know, the, I mean, physics <laughs> say that, but yeah. You know, so I don't know that's, that's the only PA that I've been able to do that with, but, but it's, it's sort of common. Like when we go up to a festival, for example, you know, the, I'll typically turn the subs down six or eight DB from wherever the systems tech or the other bands had been using them. Cause it, I, I just find it overwhelming. You know, it's like, it's, killing my mix like i cannot you know and and part of it is because i make low end in the console in the actual mix you know because a a lot of times you know that's what's used for the broadcast mix for example with five finger death punch um you know so it the the mix has to be full range and banging on its own you know with without 
supplementing the tone with with PA. You, you know what I mean by that? Like, you know, because sometimes like if you turn off the subs, it seems like your whole mix goes away, you know? Like that should never be the case for, for me, I hope, you know? If I turn off the subs, it should still be hitting just less low end, like on a, on a PA other than the cohesion, you know? And um, that's one of the things I like about the L Acoustics K2 PA in particular is you need very few subs with it. It goes all the way, you know, 40, 45 hertz or whatever, and it produces tons of impact on its own before you even add subs into the picture. Yeah. Yeah. The technology is impressive these days. You know, you can do a lot more with a lot less and way better accuracy, which, you know, everybody wins from. Yeah. Yeah. Those cohesions are insane. I people have heard me say this before, but I was out at Claire Global a couple of years ago, and I got to see the the cohesion system. And I think everybody I've talked to that has used cohesion is used between like four and eight subs at the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even a guy like Justin Timberlake, who you know has a lot of like really low sub frequency, I think he does his arena tours with like six of those, which is it's mind boggling. I, I'm yeah. so jealous you get to mix on that system. The first show I did with it was um, I mixed an artist called Yo Gotti, and they he has a birthday jam bash thing in Memphis every year, you know, and, and um, it's at the FedEx Arena, you know, and and um, I think we had six cohesion subs or eight cohesion subs on the floor, you know, and and Yo Gotti saw the how small of a number it was and he made us go get more right and and you know so it, it was just sort of funny because you know me and paul jump the systems tech he uh we're, we're like ah oh, it's like so much low end you know like and we're just using like he was ha- the artist was happy with the the sound we got but he didn't necessarily understand that we were not using it to its full potential you know so, you know, but, but emotionally he wanted to see this big pile of subwoofers, you know, so we got him a big pile of subwoofers. <laughs> it, it's funny how many people listen with their eyes, you know, and yeah. often the opposite is true. Like working smaller clubs, um, having a production company myself, I would bring in, you know, a system and the, the owner would instantly say, oh, this is going to be too loud. But, you know, it, it never was. We'd always, you know, try to keep it about 95. Too loud is a. That's that's a sub subject that I'm always harping on. I, I I mix. It's I have my my personal limit is it cannot exceed 103 decibels. Maybe every now and then I might get a trickle. It's 105 for a microsecond or something. But I try to get um, an LEQ over 10 minutes of 100 decibels. You know, which is making a song somewhere. You know, 102, 103 with dynamics and the moving up and down, you know, and I find that that's a comfortable level to listen to where your ears aren't ringing and, you know, it's just not, it's not too brutal, but it's loud enough to feel like you're at a rock concert, you know, and and sometimes we'll have opening bands that the, their, their mix is creeping up 105, 108, 110 DB. And they, they have a perception that my mix is much louder than theirs. But I'm like, yeah, let look at because I, I I keep smart on all day and keep a log of what the level has been so I can look back if somebody's misbehaving or whatever. And and I'm like, well, look, look at 
look at your level. Like that's, that's how loud you were. You're that much louder than, than my mix. But why, why is your mix not hitting? You know, what is it about it? You know, it, and you know, so it, anyways, it, I, I think it's important to not mix too loud, you know, like you have to, you have to just, I don't know, just finesse the mix until it sounds comfortable. You know, comfortable is the key phrase for me, I think it, with a mix, you know, and, and every now and then maybe you're mixing some kind of band where something should have some kind of discomfort because it's part of the art of it, you know, but, but it should be mindfully uncomfortable, you know, like a, a bass drop, you know, for a certain piece of a song or whatever, maybe it's like set to stun to cause a reaction in the audience, but you can't have that for the entire event, you know, or it'll just be uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. It's like sweetness in something. It can get cloying or, you know, it can be overwhelming. So that makes complete sense. Do you, do you find yourself using a lot of parallel compression or how are you getting that dynamic energy um, without being no. crazy loud? I don't use parallel compression. Well, let me qualify that. I have I have a, a group that I call Drum Trick, so I suppose it's parallel compression in a way. What it, it it'll be some variation. It doesn't matter what the gear is, but it'll be an aux send that goes into some kind of subharmonic synthesizer, which goes into some kind of equalizer, which goes into some kind of compressor, which returned to a channel. Okay, so depending on you know back in the old days it was a dbx 120 and a clark technic graphic eq and a dbx 160 limiter compressor you know and you know on the midas it's sub monster and just the channel processing you know on on the avid i'm using uh max bass or low air i switch between them you know i'm not sure which i like better uh and you know but at any rate the so that I suppose that is a parallel group, you know, it, it's what I call my click and boom or drum trick, you know, it, it just adds click and boom to a drum kit. And, and, you know, like what, like say, like we have 10 Tom Toms, you know, so the, a lot of people, I think EQ each Tom maybe differently, right. I, I will set all of the EQs on all the Toms the same, you know, and you know, it's possible I might, the only difference I might have is on the lowest toms. I might boost a little low end or something like that if they need it, but a DB or something, you know, like nothing crazy. But there, it's just, you, you get, like I find whatever the second or third, like the average tom is, and, and that's the tom that I sort of use to set, make the setting. And I just paste that to every channel. And the toms always go to a group, you know, so and I, I have the drums group, like kick and snare on a group, toms are on a group and cymbals are on a group. And um, so the, all the toms have the same EQ setting on the individual channel. And then on the group, you know, if they need more high end or more impact or whatever, I'll do it there. So it affects them all in the exact same way, you know, and, and I'll apply compression of some sort on the tom group and the kick and snare group, you know, so just to sort of hold any peaks from going down. But I never want, like with with compression like that, I never want it to really go more than, you know, never more than three dB. But I'm looking for just like a dB or two off of the peaks. It's not always into gain reduction, you know. That's absolutely fascinating, and 
when you were like in your Midas Pro 2C days, were you doing all of that in the console or were you using yeah. Waves Rig? Oh, wow. All in terms Well, um, let me qualify that. I, I did all the drums um, in the console's processing and I did the vocals and guitars with Waves plugins. And the, and the reason for that was latency, basically, because with, with Waves plugins, I mean, you add a plugin, you get latency, you know, and, and if you, so if I have like three guitar channels, for example, I have the exact same, pro, I have the exact same processing on all the bass and guitars, right? Whether I use them or not is, is, you know, not is a question, right? But, but the same processing gives me the same um, time offset or whatever, right? Yeah, everything goes out of the console at the same point, comes back in, all yeah. stays cohesive. With, with drums, you know, like having the drum trick, which is the only parallel group that I have, you know, that that makes it so, like in, in the Midas console, it's completely time, time aligned with, you know, with the system, you know. And I don't want to chase time from day to day. Like, I don't, I don't want to chase any problems. I want to have the fewest number of, variables that can go wrong as possible with with the mix you know a lot of times you know we i mean we don't have sometimes we have a lot of time you know but at, at a lot of shows we don't have time you know we we load in at seven or eight a.m and we have doors at 4 p.m or something you know so there's you can't mess around you know yeah how many trucks was your uh, last tour do you remember for audio for audio just one Total, it was nine trucks. Yeah, cohesion. You normally I'm on two trucks of audio, you know, for for a typical arena tour. But with the cohesion system, one truck, and and you know, there's there was room left over. Yeah, you know, we could have fit way more PA in that one truck. More subs. <laughs> yeah, we could have. And well, we sent subs back. As a matter of fact, so yeah, it's just it's so impressive. Um, and I know you're famous for using the Shure uh, Beta 98 amps on on the drums. What about your What about your kick? Are you using 98s in there also, or what are you doing um, for that? For some artists, I've used uh, SM or Beta 98s on every single drum. In this case, I'm using uh, Beta 91 amp on the kick drums, combined with a trigger which the original drummer, Jeremy, he loved the Alesis DM5, right? So we used the speed metal kick trigger. I mean, we, we kept buying them off of eBay and, you know, they break after a while. So we just, we sampled that sound and put it into Roland V-Drum system, you know? So that's, that's what is, the sound is, but it's in a Roland V-Drum. And um, so I, I combined those two, Sounds, you know, the, the mic and the trigger and sounds lovely. With with cymbals, though, it, it's funny because I, I, I did hear the guys talking about the the cymbal mic choices. And up until very recently, I did use all 98s or beta 98 amps on the cymbals and hi-hats and everything. And, and uh, at our last set of rehearsals, I was like, uh, let me try these and whatever. So I pulled out some old uh electro voice re200s that i have and i used those on the cymbals and i pulled out my old trusty sure sm81 i've had for like 30 years on the hi-hat and and yeah i was pretty happy we have a different drummer playing with the band now so 
he hits the symbols differently and it just something wasn't working out with what I was doing. So, you know, if it, if it doesn't work, you get this guy to change it, you know? So, so I did change that recently. I want to ask a selfers question. Where are you aiming that 81 on the hi-hat? Are you aiming it at the bell in the middle at where it comes together? How are you? How are you sort of in that? the middle, not, not on the side where air can go into it. And I, I hate the sound of it on the bottom. And if you get too close to the bell, it depends on the type of song or band you're mixing. You know, if you, if you, if you need a real ticky sound, you might want to get closer to the bell, but I, I think somewhere in the middle, sounds more pleasing and natural like like if you're standing next to the symbol yeah and what, one of the cool things about mixing arena shows and big festivals and such is you can't rely on the stage volume like when, when you mute the pa you don't hear anything so it, whatever you hear is what you're doing you know yeah yeah and that's uh as a guy who went from really small clubs to you know decent sized theaters that was a relief that I would, I didn't have to rely on stage volume, but it also is uh puts a lot of pressure on you. It's a different thing. Like we, you know, now when I mix the occasional smaller show, it's a, Oh, wow. What is that? Like I'll mute the PA and like, it's a hundred decibels. What am I supposed to do? You know? And <laughs> come visit Madison. I'll, I'll show you all of those little clubs and bars, and then you'll have numerous sleepless nights after that. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Is Ivan still on a uh, 58 beta? Beta 58A, that is the only mic for him, I think. Yeah, that, that's my favorite microphone for vocals for the majority of the artists I've ever mixed. It's been a beta 58A and sometimes an SM58. You know, the it's i think it's the best mic out there yeah and and you know the what having said that i really don't care about the mics as long as they have certain as long as they match like whatever you know whatever mic i have on the vocals i want all the vocals to be it but in this case again i'm screwed with that because the bass player decided he wanted that elvis mic so we we have those for his background vocals yeah sure 55 yeah, the Sure 55, yeah. You know, which they, they actually sound pretty good, but they have all, they, they let in a lot more background noise. Like when, when I have Beta 58s up for him, you know, the, you can't hear any of the stage. And when I have the 55s up, you hear the stage, yeah. Are you doing anything like uh, Primary Source Expander or anything to, to combat some of that? Or are you just handling it all through gating? Or what do you do for some of that bleed? Um, fader. So I, I, I keep the vocals or like the way I use the VCAs or DCAs or whatever. DCA number one is always the lead vocal, no matter what. Number two is always the background vocals, however many of them there are, you know, and, and number th three is the bass, four is the, you know, one guitar, five, and five is the next guitar and so on. Right. But the, but it's, so it's always the same, no matter what band and the, I'll just like, if the singer's not singing, the fader will be around minus 10, I'll just, you know, and, and when they sing, I just put it up. And, you know, one, one thing I think is important in learning artist material, like uh, I make a lyric book, you know, a cue book to start off any tour with. And um, even to this day with Five Finger Death Punch, you know, I have a, a lyric book. I don't necessarily look at it every day now, but at the beginning of a tour, I study it a lot. And if they add new songs, those new songs go into it. I'll always have the BPM, the key, 
all the lyrics and then I'll write notes about whatever I need to do to present them, you know, and, and it helps reinforce, it helps them reinforce that I can hear and understand every word that the singers are singing or saying correctly, you know, because the, the audience, I think first and foremost with any mix that I'm going to give them, they don't really care about the cool reverb I have on the snare drum. They care if they can hear and understand Ivan, you know? So that's the most important thing. So I, I start from there and then I'll write notes about the guitar riffs or solos or, you know, whatever uh, keyboard track elements we have added, you know, or they're all on that cue sheet, you know? So it's just, it's just a reference, you know, like, Oh, this sample is too loud minus three DB, you know, and eventually I'll get, you know, with our playback tech and we'll, you know, turn it up or down from the actual playback to be the right level, but I'll make notes of it there. You know, it's just my reference, but I, I strongly suggest every engineer does something similar anyways with starting with, a, you know, just a lyric sheet and, and knowing the lyrics and know, and, and relating the lyrics to the, how many bars, you know, cause some, some people can't count, for example, you know, so if you're an engineer that's not a musician, it's even more important, you know, because you have at least the vocals to reference where you're at in the song, you know. And if you can count, that's a, that's a bonus, you know. Like, I think that's a skill engineers should build, but it's not necessary, I suppose, you know. I was reaching for my Manila folder, but it's just beyond my grasp. But I did the same thing with Stitch It Apart when I started working with them and actually when I was auditioning with them doing sound was I came into the first show with all these notes. I listened to all of the music that they had. I knew mm -hmm. I sort of knew from their record what they were looking for. And then that really helped out a ton these days though, with the, the D live system that I use from Alan and Heath, I'm, I've got scenes. Are you using scenes at all on any? No, no, not at all. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I experimented with dragon force for a little while using scenes you know, and, and I was like, eh. you know, because I, I will, I will save several times in a song sometimes, you know, and I just overwrite like whatever change I just made. That's the way it is now. When there's no going back, it's just like if you had an analog console, you boost 10k or whatever on your third tom. That's where it's at. You, you know what I mean? So, so I, I do the mix manually i suppose you know and and i you know i've heard people successful you know with intense scenes but i've also seen people battling when some little thing changes or they inadvertently didn't update song number seven or whatever you know and and it's it's just easier for me to and and i i mean i'm with an artist where it's not necessary anyways although somebody else if they were if somebody else were mixing five finger death punch they may very well use scenes you know one per song or 20 per song who knows you know but, but it's not my style that consistency is really uh critical i think to not using something like scenes with with stitch apart the band that i work with they work with a lot of different producers mm -hmm. and so depending on which album they're playing a song from their you know some of the playback that they use is wildly different uh so having the scenes has been a double-edged sword for me because i've been bit by that uh mm -hmm. oh i forgot to global safe you know this this one <laughs> thing and then all of a sudden the third song i'm making adjustments to 
I'm like, why, yeah. do, why does that sound so weird? <laughs> so and the, I, I don't want, like I, I set up sort of a template. So I have all the colors or whatever I need, like with effects and stuff like that. I, I always, like I always start off. I have delay a delay B reverb, a B and C some kind of pitch and some kind of subharmonic synthesizer. That's, that's like the starting point for any mix. Yeah. You know, whether, and whether I use it or not, it depends on the song. Right. But the, you know, so that that's always there. And, and the, you know, if I need something special, like uh, Ivan has a couple of distortion parts or whatever. Yeah. You know, so I had to figure out something else for that, you know, but, um, but I, I would rather just have all of the things I need laid out and turn them on or off per song, then have a, then push next and have to re. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I don't like that. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> There's something to be said for simplicity. It, it, uh, it's elegant and it keeps you out of trouble a lot of times. Yeah. You know, one of the most interesting compliments that I've got from somebody on my mixing is that, and it was from somebody who's, uh, first language is not English. So they, they said, your mix is not necessarily the best mix, right? But it's exactly the same every single event, whether no matter whether it's inside, outside, what kind of venue, different PA, you know, and, and the, so consistency is one of the things that I really strive for, being able to repeat something. Like I would rather have my mix at 90% and be able to repeat that 90% every single time without fail than have 99%, 75%, 40%, 98%. You know, I, I don't want peaks and valleys. I want it to be consistent, the same every day. Yeah. I think that's an awesome compliment because that drove me crazy on, on tour was one night I, we would nail it. Like it just sounded so great. And then the next night the room would be different or the PA would be, we, we never carried a PA. So we were at the mercy of whatever mm -hmm. theater it was. And I would have an awful night and I was just like, what changed? My, my mix didn't change. You know, I, <laughs> so that consistency, that's fantastic. I'm wildly and insanely jealous. Balancing the PA, like when you tune the PA, that's, that's one of the, I don't change anything from day. Like I'll, I'll set my mix at rehearsals on my Yamaha HS5 monitors and my Sennheiser headphones, right? And that is that is where the mix remains with maybe you know, a little thing here and there throughout the tour, but that's where the mix remains for the whole tour, you know? And and what what changes from day to day is the matrix section of the console, you know? the Everything to the master bus, that's the same from day to day, unless I'm experimenting or whatever, you know, don't get me too deep on that but you know the you know the the tuning of the pa and setting the overall level you know so it, i know that if you know everything to my master bus if it's you know hitting you know zero db or whatever you know and and that that's that's going to be perfect now that zero db may make like on pa at festival number one it might be 110 db or something so how do I compensate? Well, I don't fuck with the console. I do it on the PA side to make sure the PA, when I give, when I plug my console into this PA, I want it to be a hundred decibels, you know? So I need to make the PA so it gives me that response, you know? And, 
And I, I see a lot of like young engineers struggle with that and with the tune, like at festivals, you know, with, with the tuning of the PA because the, the systems engineer will tune it to whatever they think is cool or whatever. But to, to me, it, there's, there's peaks and valleys all over the, you know, what these people give you, you know, and granted, if you move your smart mic, you know, 10 feet to the left, the peaks and valley, valleys turn somewhere else. So, you know, you have to average them and make educated guesses on what you're really doing. But in general, I want the response from the highest frequency that the PA will produce to the to 100 hertz. I want it to be within a dB or two of the next frequency, like no peaks, no valleys, period. You know, and and then at at the the low end, typically the tilt is like 12 dB or 14 dB or something crazy. You know, and for me, it's 3 dB or 6 dB. You know, and and when I do that, if I put in any CD that you know and love, sounds great. I plug in my mix, sounds great. And if I plug it into how how it, the PAs are often given to me at a festival or whatever, there's entirely too much low end. The low mids are weird. The high end, you know, 2K is harsh. Can't hear 10K or whatever, you know. And I don't understand. Like, you know how in movie theaters, with THX, there's a standard calibration, right? Where everything has the same, like you, you run a tone at, you know, whatever the prescribed test decibel level is. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but you know, you run a tone at that and you have the same frequency response, a prescribed frequency response. I wish in the live entertainment industry, like in mixing, that we had some similar standard to that. So it doesn't matter what PA I have or whatever, I have the same response it's linear from top to bottom you know and uh, wouldn't that be fantastic you know the pas are all in phase they all you know they all work as expected um we're well over an hour the time flew by (laughs) i say that every time and i always say you know it just is it goes so fast but this is really fascinating i'd like to ask two quick questions uh first question is take yourself out of you know the headlining role and think back, uh, put rewind a couple of years, and you're at a festival, and you're in a throw and go situation, and you've got to tune the PA. What are you really listening for when you're tuning the PA? Where are you focusing your efforts? And do you have like a, a go to track or a, a methodology that you would use to quickly tune a PA or a room? I listen for anything that stands out frequency wise, like you know whatever your favorite song is, it doesn't matter. I don't have a, I switch around songs I listen to. And sometimes I listen to just playback. Sometimes I only listen to pink noise, you know? So that's whatever it is, is irrelevant, but listen to something that you're familiar with. So you can tell if there's peaks and valleys anywhere or something that stands out or something you can't hear and try to fill in those peaks and valleys and, you know, just get it as flat as possible and do it fast because you, you don't have time. And, and if, if you're a young engineer in that situation, don't spend all of your time on the kick drum. Check your kick drum last. Do your vocal first. Do your guitars second. Do your snare drum third. And then worry about everything else. You know, like the, I've, I've seen so many people burn. You got seven minutes to do this line check and they spend the first six of them on the drums. You know, so... 
<laughs> I, I'm laughing. I, I had to mute myself because I was I was cackling. Uh, <laughs> I think it. I think it's because nearly every sound engineer channel one is kick. You know, so they work left to right. And you're right. They spend. And I've been guilty of it. I'm raising my hand. You know, I spend way too long on that kick drum, thinking that it's going to make all the difference. And if the quick Dave Mattel story, uh, I was systems tech for him once here in Atlanta in the mid nineties, I provide a PA for him while he mixed Bush and I observed him doing the line check on a unmarked. I mean, we had just labeled the console completely zeroed out console and, and he walked up and went kick snare hi-hat Tom one Tom two bass guitar guitar vocal is done. And it sounded great. You know, make a decision do it and do it fast and don't dwell on anything don't you know don't take too much time with these little minutiae because you're just going to make it worse you know just go with what you know is right yeah <laughs> don't uh, analysis paralysis is a phrase uh from my day job that i that i run into quite a bit where you spend all this time just examining and examining and examining and you sort of talk yourself out of what the right thing is to do out of fear of doing the wrong thing so that's a yeah. great great point all right, final question. Did you ever have a, a plan B? So if if live sound hadn't worked out, did you ever have a plan B or did you see this as being what you were destined to do and you were going to make it happen no matter what? Uh, no, I never had a plan B. Like in, in, in I'll, I'll never forget, and I would love to meet this uh, teacher that I had when I was um, 16, just before I dropped out of high school to do this. And um, she, she told me, you will never amount to anything. Give up this silly ideas about being in the music business, right? So people like her motivated me that there's no possibility of failure. You know, network, make contacts, continue to learn, and be cool. Don't be a jerk to anyone. And if you see somebody being a jerk, help them chill out. You know, like, like just always be cool and thing, things seem to work out, you know, and, and when I see people, they're, you know, assholes in this industry, you know, they, they don't last very long or even if they do last long, nobody likes being around them, you know, so don't be that guy. Sage words for certain. And I really hope that your teacher is listening to this podcast because I would say you've definitely made it contrary to what she told you and you're one of the legendary hall of fame audio engineers slash mixers i know you don't really take to the title of audio engineer you prefer mixer but you're you're one of the best and i can't wait to get back out on the road and catch another one of your shows right on it's been far too long and i think uh you know it's something that we all need to get back to but i appreciate all this flattery <laughs> I'm gushing. So thanks again for being on the podcast today. All the information you shared was extremely insightful and informative and helpful. I'm sure people will get a lot out of it. So Bruce, once again, thanks for your time. Can't wait to see you on the road and take care. Right on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me and take care. Good luck to everyone. And that's a wrap on this episode of Mix Masters. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please be sure to subscribe and then tell a friend. 
or maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it. I produce Mixmasters on the Allen & Heath DLive system with Sure microphones and a little help from Apple's Logic Pro X and some Waves SoundGrid plugins. One more round of thanks to Merritt Goodwin for the music. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, and thanks again for listening.